the pandemic, I think, has um, allowed us to see domestic work and women's work and care work as essential, right, to life. But that's not a new idea. It's a very, very old idea that that was stripped out and stripped away. O sea, a mí me decían, esto, con esto tú me vas a limpiar, ¿verdad? Y yo lo hacía. They would tell me, you're going to have to clean with this, and I would do it. But when I came to the Safe and Just Cleaners project, I realized that I didn't know my rights, and that I also have a voice and a say, that I can have a conversation with my employers and arrive at an agreement. Many of my employers don't read the product labels, and they say this smells good, but they don't know the harm that these products can cause. Today I speak with them, and I let them know, you are important, your family is important, and I am important too. Welcome to Persistent and Pervasive Feminists Take on Toxics. Episode 2, Part 2 Advocating for Safe and Just Cleaning. Welcome to all of our listeners once again. My name is Sally Edwards, environmental health scientist and longtime feminist. And I'm Jamie San Andres, previously a research project coordinator with Make the Road New York, where our research and organizing focused on domestic workers' health. Make the Road New York is a progressive grassroots organization that builds the power of immigrant and working class communities in New York State. And I'm Anna Mason, producer, archive coordinator, and social movement documenter. At the beginning of this episode, you heard the voice of Dr. Michelle Hofroy, who was featured in part one of this miniseries. You also heard from Lilia Osorio, a domestic cleaner involved with La Super Cleaners Group at Make the Road New York, also known as the Safe and Just Cleaners, or SJC Project. This is a community-based participatory research partnership aimed at understanding exposure to cleaning chemicals and disinfectants among Latine domestic cleaners in New York City. Through the SJC project, domestic workers like Lilia have the opportunity to learn and then teach fellow cleaners about what products are safe, how to make DIY cleaning agents, and how to have a conversation with one's employer about fostering a relationship that focuses on respect and safety for domestic workers and the employer's family alike. In part one, we discussed the problem of toxic chemicals in cleaning products and who is most impacted in particular, the millions of women who work as domestic cleaners. We learned about the chemicals of concern in these products and got a historical perspective on the conditions faced by domestic workers and their struggles to improve their situation. We encourage you to listen to part one, if you haven't yet, to hear about the historical parallels with what cleaning workers experienced in the last year because of the pandemic and how a disregard for their health and lives is intertwined with a history of colonialism, racism, classism, and migration today. For this installment, we want to focus on the efforts of organizers, domestic workers, and scientists to strive towards safe and healthy working conditions, as well as job security and benefits for those in the cleaning work sector. We'll hear from domestic workers themselves about the strategies they have created to ensure better conditions using their voices to professionalize domestic labor and educate and empower other workers. We'll speak with an organizer with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a chemical engineer working to ensure that safer chemicals are used in consumer products, and a founder of a worker-owned cleaning co-op. All of these solutions combined are helping to ensure that domestic workers are respected, 
and treated with dignity, have safe working conditions, and have a path to build economic security for themselves and their families. Before we dive into our interviews, I thought Anna could give a quick rundown on recent advances in domestic work policy advocacy. Absolutely. I'll start with when workers in New York organized and won the first Domestic Workers Bill of Rights back in 2010. This granted the right to overtime pay, a day of rest every week, paid rest time, protection under New York State's human rights law, and action for workers who were survivors of sexual or racial harassment. Since the New York Bill of Rights victory, domestic workers have organized and won a Bill of Rights in nine more states. The National Domestic Workers Alliance, known as the NDWA, has been a key organization working to get these laws passed and is now campaigning for a national Bill of Rights. The NDWA was founded in 2007 to promote the rights of domestic workers in the United States. It advocates for domestic workers in the context of broader social justice issues, including immigration reform, domestic violence, the Me Too movement, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Jamie, I'm sure you have some thoughts about these recent policy advocacy advances. I do. Much work remains to be done to improve conditions for all domestic workers. Domestic work has been historically unpaid or underpaid due to gendered notions of labor, as well as a historical exploitation of enslaved people for domestic work. Many of the laws you mentioned are definitely applicable to domestic workers who work 40 hours or more in one given household. But the reality is that many domestic workers actually work part-time for several households, making them exempt from basic protections. So if they fall in the workplace or get asthma or dermatitis from the cleaning products they're using, many don't have access to workers' comp like other workers. This is why we had to hear from a domestic worker organizer. Daniela Contreras is a full-time organizer with the New York City chapter of the NDWA. Daniela, thank you so much for coming on. Can you start out by sharing with us how you started working as a domestic worker and became an organizer with NDWA? I started working as a domestic worker probably since I was 16, 17, helping out my mother. We, we were pretty much new to the, in the country. I came when I was 11 years old and <laughs> having a language barrier, um, being undocumented at that time, it was it was hard to get a job. But also, my knowing um, my mother had to become a domestic worker when she first came, um, and the little money that she was making probably that's what pretty much pushed me to become a nanny back then when I was in high school. At that, that time, it was babysitting a few hours here and there. I think I want to say that probably everything started for me like when it came to advocating for other people um since i couldn't advocate for myself back then so life happened um probably 10 10 15 years later i go back into the domestic work industry and i become by then i am a much older person <laughs> a mom and I started working three jobs. I was doing a nanny, house cleaning, and a um, teacher assistant at a care center. And that's where I got involved with more domestic workers, meaning house, the house cleaner that was cleaning at the place where I was working. There were nannies in the neighborhood. Um, there was one that actually stood out to me, and um, 
of the nanny stories. I was in another room, but I could hear the conversation happening that the nanny felt very uncomfortable working at her employer's home that morning after she overheard the employer saying that felt they didn't feel safe or good at being surrounded with Black people. But she's like, I'm a Black, I'm, I'm a nanny, and I'm her there. They're like, they're employing me. So how do I feel now that I have to go back and feel like, pretend like nothing is happening? I also had my own questions. Every time from previous jobs that I had, I was always getting fired <laughs> for advocating from uh, for other workers, uh, for my coworkers. And um, it got to a point where like, something, it's, I'm like, I know whenever there other jobs, if something happens, you go in and ask your employer, um, the manager, you ask someone, but where do they go? Where do domestic workers go? And, and is there an agent or HR or it's like, do you go to the Department of Labor? Like, there's, I had all these questions. It's so upsetting that there is no human resources department that women can easily turn to when these things happen. While these are considered human rights violations by the city of New York, this really speaks to the gaps in our system due to the informality of this type of labor. Because when it is done in private homes and isolated from coworkers and peers, this often means workers lack the ability to document these situations. Can you tell us a bit more about how you got involved? One day, a nanny comes, a regular nanny that will come to the center. I meet her on the street and she's like, I just got fired. Uh, but I found this organization that they're coming to the neighborhood. They're sharing their information. Do you want to come? I was like, yes. On my way to the train station, the nanny calls me. She's like, we're waiting for you. I get to the space and they're like, first of all, welcome. There's food for you because I was starving <laughs> after working three jobs. No time to eat. And they gave me all the information I needed. First meeting and I was hooked. The one thing I did love about the National Domestic Workers Alliance was that one was very welcoming. Um, they welcomed my child. Uh, I'm a single mom, so I had nowhere else to leave my daughter. But what cut my attention was knowing that there was a space for me to share um, a community of other domestic workers, not only in the area where I work, but all over the city. I was in shock. I was like, I, I think I like this place. I This is where I belong. And then I since that day in 2016, I never stopped going to their meetings. Every event they would have an action. We're doing, I don't know, uh, an event at the park. We're doing outreach. We're doing something. Daniela was there. <laughs> So, Daniela and Jamie, you both have been involved in developing training materials for household cleaners. Can you tell us about these efforts? So, when I came to NDWA, I started asking, I'm like, what do you have for, for house cleaners? Because I know um, you have programs, certain uh, trainings for nannies, but I don't see anything that's developed for house cleaners. And they were like, you know what? Maybe we can partner up with someone. Maybe we can start doing something. And that's why, what, three, almost three years later, <laughs> we're at this point where we have the Safe Just Cleaning program. The program Daniela is referring to is a collaboration between NDWA, Queens College, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and Make the Road New York. 
As I mentioned earlier, it includes a worker top program that educates other workers about toxics found in cleaning products and safer cleaning practices so that they can train more workers and their employers. We were able to train the experts, um, the experts meaning domestic workers. The reason that we created this program was to empower domestic workers, one, to change things in their workplace and also to make them a little bit more conscious of the products they were giving or that they were using. Um, the chemicals that they use to clean, they're meant to be used probably once a week or maybe once a day so they don't think it's harmful. But what about the workers who use it three to five or 10 times a day? It will be harmful at the end. In our trainings, our trainers, um, when they were taught this specific section, they had like the ow and the wow moments where they were like, I've been using this my whole life and I didn't know this was so bad for me. And I'm thinking about now I'm thinking about other domestic workers, which it gives them more the, I can say the passion to give this training. They're committed to give this trainings. Jamie, can you tell us about the work that Make the Road New York did? Didn't the cleaners you worked with create their own educational video series for cleaning workers on healthy working conditions? They did, and I'm so proud of their work. Last year, when there was an increased use of toxic cleaners in response to the coronavirus, the Super Cleaners group at Make the Road New York stepped up to create a homemade video series called Cleaning in the Time of Coronavirus to inform other Latina household cleaners and communities about toxic chemicals commonly found in cleaning products. And they also learned how to make their own DIY cleaning products with Women's Voices for the Earth. We actually had a chance to hear from one of the women who worked on that video project, Flaviana Linares. We asked her to tell us a bit more about the Safe and Just Cleaning Project and the video series. I have always cleaned and used cleaning products, but what's in them? Today I can look at the instructions, be truly aware about what's really in these products, and can decide whether to use them or not, now that I know the consequences. When I joined SJC, we learned how to make our own products using simple things like vinegar and learned that it isn't necessary to use those other products. We made these videos to inform more domestic workers during 2020. It was a challenge, but it was a beautiful experience because other domestic workers could benefit from this information in a simple format, not in a language that isn't understandable, because it comes from us, domestic workers. I encourage everyone to check out the Spanish-language video series on Make the Road New York's Facebook page. It's so clear how much heart was put into making these videos, and they are incredibly useful for domestic workers as well as those cleaning their own homes. Though using safer products is certainly a step in the right direction, it does not solve the fact that many domestic workers have been exposed to toxic chemicals and cleaning products for a long time. These workers often experience health disparities that can exacerbate the impacts of these exposures. This is a significant issue given that many immigrant household cleaners don't even have access to affordable health care. The NTWA is starting to address this issue with an online platform called Aaliyah that Daniela helped create. 
Aaliyah is designed to provide a means for domestic workers to access healthcare and other benefits. When a domestic worker creates an account on Aaliyah, they then can invite each of their employers to sign up. Employers can contribute a set amount to an employee's account each time they come to clean, for as low as $5 per cleaning. Workers have control over how the funds that accumulate in their account are used. They can use the money for paid time off or sick leave, and in some cases to purchase insurance. Aaliyah is a great short-term solution. However, it is voluntary. It depends on employers that choose to participate and is not widely known of or used. In the long term, it is critical that the government provide domestic workers with access to affordable, quality health care. Now that we've gotten a sense of what's happening on the ground right now, I thought we should take a step back and learn how scientists identify safer cleaning alternatives. To give us a look behind the scenes, Sally called in a longtime colleague. Pam Eliasson is a senior associate director at the Toxics Use Reduction Institute at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell, also known as TURI. Trained as a chemical engineer, Pam has spent much of her career researching safer alternatives to toxic chemicals and assisting businesses and communities in making the switch to safer chemicals use. To provide a bit of background, TURI was established as a result of the Massachusetts Toxics Use Reduction Act passed in 1989 that requires companies that use large quantities of toxic chemicals to evaluate their operations, plan for prevention, and report annually on their progress. When Pam mentions the professionals that get certified by the state, she's referring to toxics use reduction planners who work with companies to evaluate their chemical use and plan for the reduction of toxics. Really, our mission is to help companies and communities reduce the use of toxic chemicals just so that workers and the general population and the environment is less likely to be negatively impacted. Our mission is really at at the Toxics Use Reduction Institute is to support companies in succeeding. And we do that in a couple of different ways. Um, One primary way is that there are professionals who get certified by the state to to certify that a a plan has been done in good faith, that it that it, it follows all of the you know required elements. The institute provides the training for those professionals to maintain their certification. And those professionals are really key um, towards the success of the program um, because they're really trained in how to ask the right questions and how to really motivate companies to make change, which has been great. How do you identify chemicals or products that are safer? The companies that we work with historically rely on government lists of chemicals that are of concern. So if if a chemical is not on that list, it's safer. Um, There's a huge flaw in that, which is that the government lists are only as good as the, the political will behind creating those lists and the science of chemicals. And of course, chemicals, new chemicals, Uh, come on the market all the time. Um, So if we identify a chemical that seems to be a uh, moving towards more use because it's an, uh, an alternative to a toxic chemical and it 
seems to be effective and affordable. Um, we want to take a look at those new chemicals to see if they are in fact safer. First, you have to demonstrate that this alternative is effective. You have to be able to show that it performs well. And so that's something that our cleaning lab does a lot of, looking at alternative janitorial cleaning solutions and are they safer? Uh, we use a variety of tools to determine whether or not, you know, the product itself is safer than um, what may be used currently. Um, but is it also effective? If it's not effective, it's not going to be chosen. So we do a lot of performance testing, uh, a lot of analytical testing to see whether or not chemicals that don't appear to be of concern um, to see whether or not they are effective at, at various applications. Um, when you work with a company and you want to move them towards safer chemicals, um, you can't just stop at saying this is safer. You have to say, and it does what you need it to do, and it'll allow you to do it in a way that you can afford. Um, and here's how you can convince your management that this is something worth considering and piloting and, and really, really, you know, moving towards. Pam, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the effectiveness of green cleaning products in comparison to traditional products. You know, if you have found an alternative that works but takes three times as long, that may not work. That may not be, you know, acceptable because you only have so much time in a in a home that you're cleaning. If, if, if it requires more manual scrubbing, then that could be, you know, an ergonomic concern. The, the, the cleaners themselves, the technology uh, is really evolving. So even five years ago, um, it was a little bit more true that green cleaners were less effective than it is now. Now the technology has really been uh, improving and the cleaners that we see for, you know, for commercial applications or for janitorial applications are more effective. I just want to jump in here to mention that in the description of this episode on your listening platform, we've included a list of some resources that are available for domestic workers and others to find safer and effective cleaning products. Pam emphasized the importance of the public having access to information about chemicals and products. This topic also came up in our pilot episode on toxic chemicals in menstrual and intimate care products. Well, I mean, I think transparency around what's in products is key so that organizations like ours um, can, can look at what's in products and, and help educate um, groups around what additional concerns there might be. Alex Granton, Director of Science and Research at Women's Voices for the Earth, who is featured in part one of this mini-series, described how requiring transparency can begin to change the policy landscape. Here she is referring to a California law passed in 2017 that requires manufacturers to share information on chemicals and cleaning products. You know, when we started working on um, cleaning products, this is back in 2007, 
you could get almost no information. I mean, you literally could not find out what was in cleaning products and companies wouldn't tell you because it was, it was proprietary information. Um, and so we worked on it for a long time saying, you know, what exactly are you hiding? The California law, the Cleaning Products Right to Know Act, um, it then required um, most, not all, but most chemicals in cleaning products to be disclosed um, on the internet, and then they'll have to be on labels. And that's, you know, it's really going to open up, I think, a lot of new research into into greater concerns about about what these um, products might might be doing to our health. Finding out what's in there is is kind of step one, um, and then figuring out what we need to focus on, what we what we need to get out of there, um, and hopefully, eventually, there'll be regulations that will prevent harmful chemicals from being included in these products. This is actually closely related to a concern expressed by one of the cleaning workers when she was reflecting about individual consumer choice as opposed to organized demand for safer products. Here's Flaviana now. And another thing that I've seen is that at the end of the day, these products are owned by really big corporations that are millionaires. And what they want is to sell no matter the cost. And it depends on us. She is exactly right. It does depend on us. When we come together and organize for safer products, we can be more effective in holding corporations accountable. But enough of that for now. I wanted to hear from Pam before we finish our interview about the ways that Turi is supporting grassroots organizing, like what Flaviana was just describing. So a little bit earlier, you told us that one of the many things that Turi does is provide grants. And we know that Turi does provide grants to communities and others to use safer products. So can you tell us a little bit about them? We provide funding to community groups who want to bring toxics use reduction into more of a grassroots level activity. We've been doing community grants since the early 2000s, and we um, have been reaching out to community groups and saying, what are you, what's, what are your concerns right now and how might we support you? So, so we really kind of try to leave it up to the groups themselves to identify a, a, a specific concern. We have supported a lot of research in the past on, on green cleaning, um, particularly for like house cleaners, you know, people who go into somebody else's home to clean. And these are people who are exposed to chemicals all day long. So a really important group of people who should be able to have access to effective, safer cleaners at all times. So we've done a lot of work with organizations over the years around that and around how can you develop uh, chemicals and products that you can, that use benign products that you might have in your home to create, to create a formulation that's effective for different uses. A lot of do-it-yourself kind of um, formulations. The DIY cleaning that we've worked with community groups on, you know, have been looking at, um, you know, products like Castile soap and vinegar and water and lemon juice and uh, walnut oil and products that you might be able to get your hands on fairly easily that in combination, you know, baking soda, things like that, can give you the cleaning efficacy that you need. You know, so helping groups develop formulations that are effective and getting that information out there is super important. 
It was so helpful to learn from Pam about the behind-the-scenes work of implementing a law such as the Toxics Use Reduction Act and what it takes to ensure the use of safer chemicals. It was also great to learn that cleaning products made from common household products can be safe and effective. One of the groups that received funding from Tori is Vida Verde, a worker-owned cleaning co-op. We knew we had to hear more about this group, so we reached out to Eloisa Galvao, the co-founder and executive director of the Brazilian Women's Group. Participants in this group created Vida Verde. Eloisa describes how the Vida Verde co-op creates a financially sustainable, safe, and supportive community for the women who are a part of it. The Brazilian Women's Group started 25 years ago and was just a group of women talking about the immigrant experience. Um, the majority, they were young women with very small children, um, newborn, two years old. It just helped them to navigate the American system. Over the years, what happened is that these women, they would, during the meetings, they would bring some issues like, you know, oh, my kid is in the bilingual program, but the teacher is not Brazilian. What I do? And the other woman would say, oh, you should talk to the teacher. You should talk to the principal. And then the things would get resolved because they would find their own way, you know, to fix it. And then the, the group became bigger, realized that we needed to have some funds to pay somebody to, to help the community. So we became non-profit. And this woman, her, her name is Monica. She stood up and she said, let's start a women cooperative because I am a house cleaner and I see the exploitation in the community. And I see so many women being harmed by the chemicals, the cleaning chemicals. When we started the co-op, our main goal was to call the attention of the community to the exploitation. They were working many hours and being paid very little and the health issues, you know, you don't have to clean with these chemicals, strong chemicals. Monica, the member of the Brazilian women's group that Eloisa mentioned, ended up playing a major role in the creation of Vida Verde. And Monica researched the books and she came up with some recipes that she put together. They are very simple recipes, very natural recipes. We started to use them. They were afterwards, they were tested at the... UMass Law, University of Massachusetts Law Laboratory, lab, and they came up with, we have the certificate that they were, they were tested against the, what was in the market, and they, they saw that they worked well. So we started a, a banking account, and they put 10% of their monthly earnings in their account, because the money was for this, for to help out with someone, or to pay for a a, a professional development that they want to take for something. And this account is, is doing well. So when during the pandemic, we had enough money in that account that gave stability, financial stability to the women for three months because they were not working. But the benefits um, of being the co-op is, one, you 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 can you can make you can work arrange your own schedule according to the kids' school hours, for instance, or dinner time. You can decide that 
I'm going to clean one house in the morning, but in the afternoon I have to go and pick up my children. Um, you, you know, you have control over your time, you have control over your health, and you become a voice in the community because you pass that information to others. And you have a stable income. What do the co-op workers experience when they switch to using safer cleaning products? And what do the clients have to say? Well, the clients love it. That's one reason that they hire Vida Verde. And the women, they all report that they, you know, they stop having the problems that they had before. Headaches, migraines, skin hair, hair. It's, it's working beautifully. I was also curious about the dynamics between employees and employers, since we know that fostering care and support is a way to create respectful conditions in domestic work. Employers have so much to learn from the cleaning workers that come into their home, because as Daniela said, employees are the experts of their own conditions. They know how power operates better than anyone, because their lives are dependent on that knowledge. This is just a reminder that we should always look to workers, not anyone else, to lead the movement for healthy and safe working conditions. Eloisa described the mutually respectful relationship between employers and Vida Verde workers and the training that co-op members do. We don't go to people's house just to, to make money, to clean the house and leave. These women, the house cleaners, they have a relationship. They get pregnant and they you know, or the, the, the clients get pregnant, they exchange gifts. Yeah, it's a, it's a different relationship and I think it's very nice and very healthy. We do the cleanings uh, that we talk about the Bill of Rights, the Mass Worker Bill of Rights, workers' rights in general, and about Vida Verde. And I explain how the co-op works and we, the women in the co-op, they show how to make the products. You know, they show that they indeed they do the products in front of during the training, and they they invite one of the the women in the training, one of the trainees, to help them to do the products. Um, and it's 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 very helpful because even if they, I mean, they don't have to be in the co-op. What what we have been trying to um, tell them and to promote in the communities that they they because of the pandemic and because work so scarce. They, they can start their own co-op, like with two or three women. And they can share the jobs. They can share the profits if they have profits, wherever they make. We have been telling them, experiment with this, with cleaning or something else. So do you think of your work as feminist activism? And do you consider yourself a feminist? You bet. I mean... You know, it would be very different, the women, <laughs> without the women. If you've seen the pandemic, the women are taking the leadership. The women are taking the leadership and, and, and it falls on their shoulder much more responsibility because they are the one who look at the kids. They are the one who help with homework. They are the one who cook, the one that watch. So, we, of course, this is so important that the women understand that they they have the leadership. They have important role in the community. They are the one who carry this beyond. And the women usually are, are stronger than the men. They they are stronger in the sense that they you know they they find a way. And in this pandemic, we have seen this. We have seen much more of this. They reinvent themselves. The problem is that they. Sometimes they don't feel confident because 
they 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 are afraid that they think they don't know everything or if they don't know English. But I I always tell them, you know, speak in the language that the, the language that you know. It doesn't matter if you don't you're not speaking in English. Speak up. Use your voice, because if you don't tell your story, who is going to tell? I cannot tell for you. I can tell your story. I can repeat, but it's that it is not as strong as if you tell your story. Your voice. Lilia certainly agreed with Eloisa's sentiments in her own testimony. Que siendo inmigrante, mujer, madre, este. I am an immigrant, a mother, an entrepreneur, and a strong woman that fights for what she wants. I am a woman with many, many achievements, and I have rights, just like everybody else that has a profession, that has a degree. The fact that I don't have a degree doesn't mean I am any less worthy. I too am worthy, just like any other human being. And I need to have my head high because it is a dignified job to be admired. Because we are worth a million, a million, and our health doesn't have a price. Our health doesn't have a price. The fact that domestic workers have to remind themselves of their own worth is a signal that so much of the work ahead is about dignity. There is no path forward towards safer conditions if people do not see domestic work as a type of labor that is worthy of care. We have to start there. As we heard at the top of the episode, domestic work is essential work. It's important to understand the deep roots of domestic workers organizing efforts. Something we touched on last episode, but is worth revisiting in this moment. Dr. Michelle Hoffroy, a professor at Smith College who teaches about United States-Mexico borderlands, indigenous cultural resistance, and transnational social movements, shared this story from Laredo, Texas. In 1903, when another yellow fever outbreak uh, happens in Laredo, all of the wealthy families split. They just abandoned town. The domestic workers from one day to the next have no work. So the domestic workers organize. They publish a public petition in the local paper and they call everybody out. They demand that under these conditions with absolutely no economic means of survival, that the people with the most power must redistribute the resources to the workers who make that wealth possible. It's a beautiful moment. Mm. Um, When we translated that petition and shared it, we circulated it with our compañeras in some of the um, organizations. One of the affiliates in San Antonio, Domesticas Unidas, used that model and did the very same thing. When we asked Dr. Hoffroy about the result of this campaign, she said that Domesticas Unidas succeeded in pressuring the city government to provide financial assistance to domestic workers regardless of immigration status. That has been amazing to watch as well, not just to say, God, things never change, but we changed them before and here are the means to change them again. As you can see, modern day social movements have so much to learn from past organizing. And cases like this one prove that looking to history can provide a real tangible guide for how to effectively make change. It has been such a journey to hear from all of our contributors throughout this mini series. And what feels most significant to me is to hear over and over the importance of raising one's voice 
and speaking out against injustice. Across these two episodes, our focus has been on the disproportionate exposure of domestic workers to toxic chemicals in cleaning products. As we dug into the history of domestic work, we found out there was far more to this story than we could have imagined. Last episode, we learned about the chemicals in cleaning products and how they often contain toxic disinfectants, even if not needed for cleaning. We also learned that some products contain fragrances with toxic ingredients that are marketed especially to Latinx consumers. In our interviews with two feminist historians, we learned how capitalism, racism, sexism, and colonialism have shaped the treatment of domestic workers across time and how this history has impacted health inequities today. This has helped us to better understand the efforts of household cleaners today to improve their working conditions and job security and reduce health impacts from toxic chemicals. Domestic workers have been organizing for a long time. That's right. And there is a place in this movement for everyone, employees, employers, scientists, and policy advocates. Find your way in and start doing. Dive deeper and check out the resources we shared today. The links to the resources we have mentioned in this podcast are included in the episode description. And get involved with the National Domestic Workers Alliance and all of the amazing organizations we mentioned today. And if you're an employer, check out Hand in Hand, a national network of employers of nannies, house cleaners, and home attendants who are organizing for dignified and respectful working conditions. We're going to leave you with one last sentiment from Lilia. And I'm still learning because this doesn't stop. This is about moving forward, to continue dusting that layer of fear, of saying to ourselves, I don't have papers, I am an immigrant, I am a woman, or I am Latina, and think I don't have rights. I am important and I am worth a lot, and my work is worth a lot. Domestic work is just as important as any other job, and so before I wouldn't see it like that, but today, well of course I do. Thank you so much for listening to our series on cleaning products and domestic workers. We've met amazing people and learned so much. Continue listening with us to learn about who is most impacted by the toxic chemicals in products marketed to women and girls and the stories of scientists and activists who are working to find solutions. We care so much about making this podcast and are honored that you've joined us on this journey. This has been Persistent and Pervasive, Feminists Take on Toxics. Thanks, everyone. Thank you to Make the Road New York and the Safe and Just Cleaners Project for all of the resources and consulting provided, as well as introducing us to Jamie. Thank you so much to Lilia Osorio and Flaviana Linares for your testimonies about your work. Thank you to our interviewees, Daniela Contreras, Pam Eliason, Eloisa Galvao, Jennifer Guglielmo, Michelle Hofroy, and Alex Granton for sharing your knowledge, thoughts, and stories. We thank our sound engineer, Steve Thomas, and finally, the cleaning workers everywhere who are continuing to raise their voices and fight so hard for safe products and healthy working conditions. Thank you.